Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. You're listening to Rock and Roll All Night, recorded by KISS and co-written by the band's frontman and our guest, Paul Stanley. You show us everything you've got. Paul Stanley is best known for his vocals, guitar, and outlandish stage performances that have helped define KISS. Combining elements of shock rock and glam to set a new standard for theatrical arena rock, Stanley's Starchild persona, alongside fellow band co-founder Gene Simmons' demon character, has become one of the most iconic figures in music history. One of the best-selling bands of all time, KISS has sold over 75 million albums worldwide and has earned more gold-certified albums than any other band in the U.S. Fourteen of their albums have been certified platinum, three of which have earned multi-platinum status. Stanley has written or co-written many of the band's best-known songs, including Strutter, Rock and Roll All Night, Shout It Out Loud, Detroit Rock City, God of Thunder, Hard Luck Woman, Love Gun, I Was Made for Loving You, Lick It Up, Heaven's on Fire, Crazy Crazy Nights, Forever, and many others. In addition to his work with the band, Stanley released a self-titled debut album in 1978 and another solo album in 2006 called Live to Win. More recently, he released the album Now and Then, a collection of R&B classics alongside vintage-style originals under the name Paul Stanley's Soul Station. Defying categorization, he has written a hit song with Michael Bolton, duetted with Sarah Brightman, and even starred in a production of Phantom of the Opera. Paul's songs have been covered by a diverse list of artists, including Cher, Nirvana, The Replacements, Green Day, Ronnie Spector, Bonnie Tyler, Toad the Wet Sprocket, and Garth Brooks. As a member of KISS, Paul was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2014. This fall, the band wraps the final leg of their End of the Road tour, culminating in a pair of shows at Madison Square Garden in New York, the city where KISS first formed in 1972. Part 1 Hey Songcraft listeners, today's episode, like so many others, is brought to you by Pearl Snap Studios. Go to pearlsnapstudios.com and find out what they can do for your song. No matter what genre you write in, they can help you make a demo or fully produced record that you will be absolutely proud to share with friends, family, or even pitch to professional artists. Dozens of Songcraft listeners before you have taken advantage of their services and have been more than pleased. We've given you some of the testimonials on air. I'm sure we'll do it again, but find out what they can do for you. Hit up our friend Justin and his team at PearlSnapStudios.com. Tell them that Songcraft sent you and you'll get a discount on your first recording. Scott, you wanted the best. (laughs) You got the best. Today we are talking with Paul Stanley from Kiss. Yes, we are. (laughs) And I have you to thank for that, my friend. You set up this interview. Well, listen, if, if, if I thanked you for everyone you've set up, you know, we'd be here for a long time. So <laughs> I'm just, I'm glad I got one in there, but, um, unbelievable, man. It, uh, and I, I think one of the things that made this so, um, you know, spine tingling for both of us was that we're not just talking to a songwriter. We're sort of talking to a, a mythological character. We are talking to <laughs> a the cultural star child. icon. Yeah. Um, that actually came up a lot in the interview, this talk about image and the larger than life presentation and persona of kiss and uh, you know one of the things you'll hear paul say is that their personalities were also right there in the middle of that image it wasn't a put on it was actually more of a magnification of their personalities yeah uh, in a way um in in a much larger than life kind of way (laughs) um and man it got me thinking like there there are bands that have kind of tried that artists that have tried that Mm -hmm. some to great effect yep and some maybe not so much um 
I think about the Ziggy Stardust character right. that that David Bowie uh, played, but but that was temporary. Yeah, you know, that was an era period, and he was already like David Bowie before that. Like right. we didn't meet him as Ziggy Stardust the Which, way that we met Kiss as characters. By the way, how, how courageous at that point to be like <laughs> I I'm now going to present myself as this character now right. with this makeup and this look. Right. And and David Bowie did that really really well. We saw that. Uh, a little while later with Garth Brooks and Chris Gaines. <laughs> Chris, Chris Gaines. Like, I would love to do an entire episode on Chris Gaines, by the way. I don't I don't think that, that the Chris Gaines alter ego earned the same artistic respect as no. the Ziggy Stardust alter ego. That's just my armchair opinion. Right. But. And we've talked about trying to get Garth Brooks on the show, and that's something we'd both like, love to do. And, and maybe the trick is doing it as Chris Gaines. Maybe, you know, <laughs> right. come on as Chris Gaines. I don't know. But... um. You know, I even think about bands like Slipknot, yeah, which which play in masks and right and things like that. And and it, but it's never been, I don't know, it, it never took root, yeah, the way the Kiss thing did. Yeah, where you know, if I see Corey Taylor from Slipknot in an interview without a mask, I'm not like, whoa, he's not wearing the mask. I'm like, right. of course he's not wearing the mask. <laughs> but when Kiss took the makeup off, everyone just sort of went, what? Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, th- there are human faces underneath those those characters and. It, the timing of it, the way they did it, um, was just so effective, and and really wove, weaved, made its way into <laughs> into the public consciousness, uh, and it actually set the tone for a really interesting conversation because you know we're digging beneath that. We're talking about the songs, right? Um, and so to kind of juxtapose an image uh, versus the the structural integrity of what makes a band great, you know, it's the yeah. songs was was a really great thing to jump into. And I think unlike any other band, Kiss, like they, they never had uh, a moment where you kind of rolled your eyes and like, oh, has-beens. Like they always have managed to kind of stay this institution because they built this thing, this huge reputation as a live act in the 70s. By the late 70s, they were just huge. The biggest band in America, probably. Um, And then when they took the makeup off, you know, it was right in time for the 80s. And there was this huge explosion of like hair metal and, and you know, that kind of thing. And they already were legendary and they managed to sort of like be the torchbearers for for that kind of thing. I mean, they were writing, you know, part of the, the kind of 80s hair metal thing was um, incorporating pop sensibilities into hard rock and, and getting radio hits with ballads. Yeah. And, you know, they had already pioneered that in the seventies with, with Beth, but you know, they're really like perfecting that in the eighties and just about the time that hair metal kind of faded as grunge rose, you have the whole grunge generation that is nostalgic about kiss in the makeup yeah. from when they were kids. So then kiss goes back to the makeup yeah. And when the the whole grunge thing, like they completely abandoned like 80s metal and suddenly 80s metal was uncool. The true survivors were Kiss because all the the grunge people were like, oh, no, I love Kiss. And so they put the makeup back on. I mean, talk about like the most uh, well-timed. Totally. There's no other band I can think of that for 50 years has managed to never be like elicit a smirk like right. it's always like oh yeah i respect kiss like, yeah and, you know. and and it is that combination of the fact that that they were so uh strategic about the makeup and when to have it and when to not have it and the fact the other thing that we talked about in the interview was the fact that the live experience is is the lifeblood of the kiss machine right and so their their catalog and the songs that have made them great have always been at the forefront um and you've always been reminded that shout it out loud is a jam 
yeah. you know, because they're because they tour so much and because they bring the songs to you and and they bring them in in with sparks and fire and <laughs> and with great pomp and circumstance. Uh, I saw Kiss uh, with Motley Crue. I think it was 2011 or 2012, right? And I was shocked at how dangerous the show was. <laughs> like, like somebody started a fire <laughs> right. at the Irvine. Might have been still the Spectrum at that point. I'm not sure, but it's like this Irvine amphitheater, and, and somebody started a fire. Jeez! And I'm just sort of standing there with this like Lord of the Flies thing going on around me, and like kisses playing. And I'm just like, dang, this is like this still has all of its resonance, man. Yeah, yeah. I saw him in Nashville. I think in '96, '97, somewhere in there when yeah. they first came back with the makeup and it was uh it was it was epic um a totally unforgettable show um and i have to say i still have a little residual trauma uh (laughs) from i have this very firm memory of being a child i was about four years old i I don't know where my parents were but i was alone i mean they were in the house but i was i was alone in the den watching television and smoking, kiss, smoking, <laughs> yeah. smoking a cigarette yeah. as we all did in the eighties. Uh, so I'm, I'm a four year old sitting on the couch. And I mean, as I'm telling the story, I can see the couch in my mind. I can see the little TV and kiss came on and I was terrified. Yeah. And Gene Simmons is spitting blood and, you know, they've got all this makeup and their boots are as tall as I was at the yeah. time. And, you know, I was freaked out. And this was before there were remote controls. And all I wanted to do was to change the channel (laughs) or turn it off. But the only way to do that was to approach the TV and and turn the knob. And as a four-year-old, I thought, if I get close to that television, they're going to come out of it and they're going to eat me. (laughs) And, And I think I just closed my eyes tight and plugged my ears and waited for it to, to go away. Cause I was just so scared. And like, I, that's what I always think about when I think wow. of, of kiss. Um, and so there was a part of me that when we got on the zoom with Paul Stanley, I was like, I hope He's he doesn't come out me. of my computer yeah. and eat me. Um, <laughs> you know, but he didn't, he was a very nice man. You know, I, I and not to take the air out of your story at all. But uh, I do want to point out that when you were four, it was still the 70s. So, (laughs) you know, (laughs) so nice job trying to say what we were all doing in the 80s when I was four. But it was 79 when you were. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So it was in the 70s. um, Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the things we had a chance to do in the interview was to bring uh, a question from one of our our Patreon subscribers, um, which is fun. It's it's fun that we're kind of doing that now at at that level. And um, if you don't know what Patreon is, by the way, that's um, that's how listeners and supporters of our show can get involved um, with small monthly contributions, and um, then we kind of kick back some pretty cool, uh, what do you call them, prizes? Uh, yeah, some some goodies. Uh, I don't know. Kickbacks, and, yeah. and it's it's all kind of sketchy. You know, you know. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, but we have uh, tiers where people can help support the show. So if you go to patreon.com slash songcraft show, you can find out um, how you can get on board. So um, one of our listeners got the chance to ask a question, as Paul mentioned, uh, of Paul Stanley, because one of the things we're doing now is if you are a supporter at a certain level, uh, you have the opportunity to submit a question in advance. We will post 
post on there when we know that we have a guest coming up and say, hey, uh, send us a question. If we use it, then we'll we'll mention you on the show. So uh, one Patreon supporter gets a little shout out later yep. on. So so keep an ear open for that. And then the other thing is um, we will uh, do a little behind the scenes things about uh, how the interview came together, yeah. what happened when we were doing the interview, some of the stuff that might have been kind of funny. And we have a very good one uh, about Paul Stanley. Yeah. And and this was a wild it, it was wild how all this came together and just how we kind of were starstruck and yeah. and made a f- couple missteps probably in our uh, in our attempt to try to be cool. But, you know, uh, it, it's good listening. So anyway, if you're not already a Patreon supporter, check that out again. Patreon.com slash Songcraft Show. And you can get some of that uh, bonus material and get a chance to potentially participate. And there's all kinds of other goodies, too, that yeah. that you can look at and see see the tiers there and, and see what works for you. And this is probably a good time to let everybody know about a really fun upcoming interview we have with uh, Stephen Foster, the writer of My Old Kentucky Home. Um, so if you have any questions for Steve. It's our very first seance uh, interview. Uh, we don't know yeah, how it's going to go. He, he may come out and eat you. That, that, that may actually happen. <laughs> that, that, that could. That could <laughs> what happened to Scott? Stephen Foster came he, through the Zoom uh, yeah. and ate him. He was a Zoombie. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Part two. Paul, welcome to Songcraft. It's great to be here, and it's great uh, that we're talking about songcraft. I always say to people, anyone can write a song, but that doesn't make you a songwriter. And that's <laughs> that's a important point. Is is uh, songwriting is easy, but really understanding what goes into it is far beyond the mechanics. Hmm. Yeah, a little bit of craft, a little bit of mystery, a little bit of magic. Uh, we're going to be diving into that. Um, well, you and your KISS bandmates will soon wrap up the final performances of your final tour, which is called the End of the Road Tour. And, you know, over the course of the band's 50-plus year career, you guys have really established yourselves as, you know, maybe the quintessential live band. And, And in fact, you know, I think of songs like Rock and Roll All Night or Shout It Out Loud, and these are songs that are probably even better known in their live recorded versions uh, than they are in the studio versions. And there's something about the songs in the Kiss catalog specifically that I think, you know, belong at least as much to the live experience as they do to the studio. Um, And I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on the songwriting process, knowing that your songs are in some ways almost designed to thrive in that in that live setting i'd love to get your thoughts on that because we're i think a band that uh is best known for the live experience many of the songs have been written with that anthemic quality which lends itself to a live performance not just of the band but of the audience uh it's a um I've always thought of us, we're audience participation. And um, the songs that perhaps we're best known for were more or less written with that in mind. Um, A song like Rock and Roll Night and Party Every Day is anthemic in that it really sums up what the band is about. And in songs like that, I think it's important to to sing about I as opposed to you. 
Um, ultimately, the song is about me. And when you sing a certain type of song, you know, if, if you're pledging allegiance, it's I pledge allegiance, not we pledge allegiance. Mm. So um, that combined with really, I would say, classic song structure. I grew up loving beyond classical music and, and opera and Broadway and, and um, bluegrass and everything else that I listened to. You couldn't beat Doc Pomus. You couldn't beat Lieber and Stoll or um, uh, Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich, um, Barry Mann and Cynthia Wheel, Jerry Goffin and Carol King. Those were artists. Mm. They they were the brains and the message behind the the singers and the groups for the most part. And they all pretty much adhered to classic songwriting and uh, shared shared offices and, and cubby holes in the Brill Building. So um, when I was probably 14 or 15, I actually went down to the Brill Building and and uh, had an appointment and went in with my guitar and sang, sang songs. So wow, wow, that really, that's really the basis for what we do. Um, I think that separates us from a lot of bands who are riff heavy and then just scream over it. There's <laughs> structure to everything we do. Yeah, was was that an aspiration of yours? I mean, I, I know that you grew up in in New York, and you know, uh, people talk about New York pizza or New York bagels, and it's it, the water has a lot to do with what goes into making those things taste the way they do. And I think about the influences that were around you, you know, kind of going into your makeup, almost like water. Um, was that an aspiration of yours to be a songwriter, like a Brill Building type songwriter? I wanted to write that quality. It's great to have a standard to reach for whether or not you reach it or not. Um, I think it's important to know um, what is exemplary and mm. then use that as the benchmark. So um, I wanted to sing my own songs, but I wanted them to be really good songs. Yeah. Um, I had a great template in those people. And I, I'm, sit I'm sitting here laughing because pretty much they're all Jewish, you know, <laughs> so go figure, you know, between bagels and songwriting, we, we seem to cover the market. <laughs> well, there, there is a rich storytelling tradition uh, in, in Jewish heritage. I, I wonder if that actually, you know, sort of connects in that way as well. Could very well, could very well. Um, you know, you, you listen to that, those, the great writers of pop music and, and, uh, I was going to say there's so much soul in it. And by soul, I don't mean, I, I, I mean heart. Mm, yeah. I mean passion. I mean emotion. Um, another great Laura Nero. I mean, yeah. You know, you just don't get, you don't get better than that. Um, so I've always had great inspiration from, from great writers, whether or not what I'm doing is, good or as good or whatever um i've always aspired to um a certain quality and if you listen to some kiss songs there's four tops in some of the songs sure. that i i nicked there's spinners there's um free 
Yeah. There's all kinds of little bits and pieces. And I think that's important is to have a foundation in music other than what you're doing. And certainly when, when uh, you, you have Irving Berlin and Cole Porter and, and, you know, all, all the greats that came earlier, it humbles you and, and gives you a chance to go, okay, there, there's greatness out there. Mm. And whether I reach it or not, there's also structure there. Yeah. Well, to, to kind of press the pedal down quickly to get into how Kiss came to be, you know, you and Gene Simmons started a band that was originally called Wicked Lester. Um, that was signed to Epic Records, mm-hmm. and we, we made our way to February 1974. I mean, I hustle right all the way into 74, um, the self-titled debut album. And I look at the song Strutter, which opens the first album. Um, you and Gene wrote that together. That's a song that really presented so many sides of Kiss right away. I mean, you, you talk about all the elements that show up in the songs, and I feel like so much of that shows up in Strutter. I mean, you've got a very stonesy guitar part that kind of leads the song off, and then it's this really tough blue-collar verse vocal. Then there's a sophisticated chorus harmony that almost feels like a precursor to what the ELO did later. And then there's a metal riff after that that feels like Nazareth meets like a sped-up Black Sabbath. I mean, there's so much going on there. I look at a band like U2, and I felt like U2 needed the Octung Baby album to help them change directions. But you presented multiple directions, basically in the very first song of your very first release, which I feel kind of established the Kiss identity right away. Were you at all aware that you were doing that, or were you just writing what came to you? Um, I think what happens with time is you lose that naivete that makes some of your early writing so so potent Mm. um we we did what felt good and what felt familiar not because it sounded like another song but maybe some of the pieces sounded like other songs and and it was a matter of um cut and paste so interestingly i I, and by no means would i compare myself or us to to bob dylan but i saw a great interview where they were asking him about those early songs of his just brilliant almost stream of conscious lyrics and he said i couldn't write those today Mm. i was possessed i you know (laughs) i i don't know where they came from that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, 
in a way I understand it because many of the lyrics to some of those earlier songs of mine were almost spit out. Um, and as you write over time, you start to labor over lyrics and perhaps there's nothing to be said for just that instinctive, um, that instinctive honesty. I just remember um, she's a dancer, a romancer, corn and she's a cancer. I, she saw my picture in a music magazine. When she met me, said she'd get me, touched her hips and told me that she'd let me. I took her hand, baby. This is what I said. Well, I couldn't write that today. Mm. We wrote that in five minutes. So the rhyme schemes and the couplets and um, there's there's a freedom in not knowing rules and not having to not the not have the pressure of living up to something you've done when you're just paving the way. Well, I really think of the the first Kiss era as those first three studio records leading up to the the first live record called, of course, Alive. And that was, you know, your first top 10 album, your first to be certified gold. It yielded your first top 40 radio single with the live version of Rock and Roll All Night. Um, so this was, you know, a moment where you guys broke through again, as we talked about as a, as a live band. And, and again, people are hearing, um, you know, some of your now classic songs like hotter than hell firehouse, come on and love me hundred thousand years, black diamond rock bottom. Let me go rock and roll. These are things you guys had recorded. And now people are hearing these, these live versions of them. And, and this is the moment I think that kiss, uh, starts becoming an institution, so to speak. Um, and this is obviously years before you guys removed the makeup. So in a sense, you're kind of these characters on stage. And I want to explore a little bit in what way being a character influenced your songwriting. And I guess, you know, what I'm asking is, were you consciously writing differently in those days, kind of as a character, as opposed to how you might have written later as, you know, Paul Stanley, here I am, I have no makeup on. Was there any difference Great in question. your mind? Great question. Um, yes, but also having much to do with the fact that I was young, um, sowing my oats, um, enjoying opportunities in a life that I had heard about, but certainly never saw firsthand. So um, was I writing as a, I was, I was that character. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wasn't portraying something. I was living it. Uh, a song like room service. Yeah, I was, I was on tour and I was in hotels and all kinds of things went on. So um, it certainly glorified um and paid homage to that lifestyle and to what I was doing, but it wasn't made up. If I did it today, it would be made up. Hmm. That's why when someone says, you know, at some point it became, why don't you do an album like the first couple? Cause I can't hmm. you, because those were spontaneous and you can't recreate spontaneity. You can only do a premeditated, calculated version of it, and that's not the same thing. So 
I had no desire later on to, you know, in the last 20 years or whatever, try to replicate that because it's not part of my life. Right. Right. The character is part of who I am, Mm. but I was writing about who I was at the time and I was glorifying it, but I was in my glory. (laughs) It is kind of amazing. Those live records, people quote, your introductions to the songs as much as they will kind of quote the lyrics to the songs. Star Child character came through even in the, even the moments you were speaking on those records. Totally. Um, and the character being you, obviously. And and that parts of that, in in all honesty, came about because when we started, it was a defense and a shield mm-hmm. so that the audience wouldn't wouldn't attack me. They could attack the character. You know, when you're when you're creating Kiss and you're playing a club for 80 people or 100 people, you you gotta you gotta be up there with a full artillery. And whether it was the songs or or the bombast and the the uh, the spit and you know the piss and vinegar of it, yeah. I was up there talking in a way where people would go, "Where's he from? What's what's that?" You know. Um, I can remember playing clubs and in New York, we had a rule. We wouldn't play. I think it was, we had to not play for two months after we played and Hey, we had no money and we were, we were dying to go play. And, but I would go up on stage and go, you know, we, we, this is our first time back here. We've been on tour. Yeah. We've been on tour. We've been in our loft sitting around with our thumbs in our butts waiting for, for the chance to play. <laughs> um, you know, w- when you look at 
the top selling bands of all time, you know, you, you see names like the Beatles, Beach Boys, Pink Floyd, Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, you look at the, the Motown groups and, and, and Kiss, and, and all those that I just named shared one characteristic, and that's multiple lead singers. Um, I've always felt like that kind of gives a band a distinct advantage because you have a little something for everybody. You have new flavors throughout an album, sometimes even throughout a song, to keep the listener alert and mm-hmm. engaged. Um, you know, Shout It Out Loud was you guys' uh, I believe your first single to go top 40. And that's one of the few songs that actually features both you and Gene on lead vocals. also have a song like Black Diamond, which you wrote, but featured Peter Chris on vocals. I'd like to hear from you about what it means creatively to be able to write. You know, we talked about writing for, for one personality or character, but you were able to write for multiple distinct vocal personalities. Um, and I'd like to know even the thought process about building certain songs around certain singers in your band. Well, Gene and I have always played off each other really well. And in, in loose concept, certainly we were drawn to the template of the Beatles where you could love the band, but you could also have a favorite. So we never thought of ourselves in particular, Gene and I never thought of ourselves as the lead singer. Hmm. We were, you know, Esther Worthway. We were John and Paul. Hmm. It's interesting you draw that comparison because I think in another in another sense, the Beatles created the template for merchandising. I mean, before the Beatles, you didn't have like all this sort of like band merchandise. And I can't think, I mean, I think by this point, Kiss has surpassed the Beatles in terms of, of merchandising. I can't think of any mm-hmm. other band, you know, that has, has done that. So there's another interesting, you know, uh, connection there, I think, in terms of, of modeling. Interestingly, at some point, there was such a backlash against the connotations of a fan club um before the beatles you could be in fabian's fan club or frankie avalon or jimmy clanton or you know a a myriad of different people and it had a connotation that i think people rebelled against and said this isn't cool we had a different point of view and our point of view was If somebody wants something and if somebody wants to affiliate themselves with you uh, and show off their connection or admiration, why wouldn't we do that? If that's a fan club, count us in. Um, That uh, never understood what was uncool about a T-shirt with your name on it. And then people wanted belt buckles. We never gave anyone anything they didn't want. We weren't marketing geniuses. We just had acute hearing. Mm. 
<laughs> and when people tell you what they want, if you deny that to them because you're too cool, you know, that was that was the way things operated when we first started doing it. And then lo and behold, when other bands saw the money it was generating, suddenly you had this band's Air Force and this band's, you know, Crusaders and this band, you know, and it's all it's all Kiss Army. Mm-hmm. But it it could never be Kiss Army because Kiss Army started Kiss Army, the original Kiss Army started with fans. It started with fans going to a radio station in Terre Haute, Indiana, and saying, if you don't play Kiss, we're going to surround your station. <laughs> and the radio station thought it was very funny until <laughs> the next day or whatever. So that's 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 that was the start. So um, merchandise, yeah. And why not? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Um, the people who don't want you to do something are the ones who can't. <laughs> so, you know, you can argue it any way you want, but at the end of the day, it's jealousy. <laughs> and it, it's, it's so transparent because um, every band now sells T-shirts. <laughs> so where do you draw the line? Yeah. You yeah. know, yeah. Um, sleeping bags. Oh, they're not cool. Just T-shirts. Well, <laughs> screw you. <laughs> I just happened to notice as we're talking that I'm wearing a freeway billboard of a Beatles shirt right now as we're talking, so um, bearing it out right in front of us. And how cool their logo. We had to have a yeah. logo. Yeah. Um, the Beatles with that elongated T. Yeah. Man, that was that was too cool. Um, we wanted a logo like Coca-Cola has one, like mm. Ford has one. Um, yeah. And again, that wasn't the norm. Um, bands had kind of forsaken that. Mm-hmm. And each album a band put out had a different type, you know, a different font. We, we, we wanted uh, consistency. We wanted to drill something. We wanted brand identification. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with being a band and a brand. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about one more song off the Destroyer album. Uh, Detroit Rock City is a staple of the Kiss catalog, and I would say it's a, it's kind of a song that's got its own mythology. Um, it's named number six in VH1's list of 40 greatest metal songs. It's got a whole movie titled after it. But to people who are just casual Kiss fans, they might not know that its signature riff had its origins in an earlier song called Acrobat that you guys only played live. Um, And I think one of the more fascinating tools of great songwriters is the ability to recognize parts that can be shifted around, um, an element of song that seems like it might be able to live in a new home or maybe it hasn't found its home yet. I'd love to know how you came to the decision to transplant and rework that Acrobat riff into the song we've all come to know and love as Detroit Rock City. They're organic in origin. Um, I didn't think about it, but it was certainly in my head. But uh, just in terms of premeditated acts of thievery, Gene and I have always stolen from each other. Um, (laughs) 
we both had title lists for songs of things we wanted to write. And um, he saw on my list a song that I wanted to write called Christine 16. Well, I also saw on his list a, a title Black Diamond. So we we were selfless in the sense that we were just working towards the goal of making the band great. Mm. You become great when your band is great. Don't worry about making you great. You know, the sum is greater than its parts and will make the parts look better. Um, honestly, I didn't, I didn't consciously take that riff from Acrobat, but over the years, Gina's pointed it out to me. And for him, there's no getting around that he's singing my song when he sings God of Thunder every night. So, <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, it's all done in the best way. We've, we've always felt very comfortable switching instruments, um, switching vocals. It's, it's, it's never been an issue for us. We, we've always been able to do that very, very well. Mm. Um, Strutter actually started out as an old song that Gene had called Stanley the Parrot that had nothing to do with me. He wrote it before he ever knew me. And the chords were good, not the way it was played, but the chord changes, the B to the G to the D to the A, I think. And we we rocked it up and spiffed it up, and it became Strutter. We changed it. Uh, the riff that comes in after the chorus wasn't there, and a lot of it has been changed. But we've always been very comfortable borrowing from each other. <laughs> well, I also wanted to talk to you about Hard Luck Woman. That's that's one of, to me, the more remarkable songs in the Kiss catalog. Um, we talked about all the styles and movements in the song Strutter, but who knew that you had all these other sounds in your arsenal as well? I mean, I, I, you know, Peter's song Beth was, was an unexpected moment, I think, for a lot of people. But the follow-up single that you wrote for him, Hard Luck Woman, I mean, I understand that was originally written with Rod Stewart in mind. And first of all, I just want to say that's an amazing song. Um, the lyric, Thank the you. melody, Thank it's you. just catchy and timeless. Uh, if never I met you I never have seen you cry If not for a first Hello We never have to say goodbye If never I held you My feelings would never show It's time I start walking But there's so much you'll never know I keep telling you Hard luck I first heard it um, on Garth Brooks' version on the Kiss My Ass tribute album. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's got this folky, rootsy Americana thing that you just nailed. And I wonder, in an alternate universe, could you have ever envisioned yourself as kind of a Laurel Canyon or California country rock troubadour type? Totally, totally. My roots are all over the place. Like I said, my roots are in classical music and opera and bluegrass and um, what was known as folk music. Um, yeah, so all over the place. I'm, um, 
what I loved on Rod's, on those early albums, I loved Mandolin Wind mm-hmm. and uh, You Wear It Well. All those those songs. And, and sometimes I've, I've found myself listening to something and going, I could do that. I could. I understand that I, um, in a very, um, elementary way, even going to studio 54 and hearing songs with 126 beats a minute, I kind of went, I can do that. Mm. And me and Des and, and Vinnie Ponce to come up with, I was made for loving you. So, um, hard luck woman was very much after listening to some of the early rod stuff was, I can I can write that, and interestingly, um, I ran into oh about six months ago Elliot Laurie. Elliot was the songwriter and lead singer in Looking Glass, hmm. and they had a big hit with a song called Brandy. And Elliot said to me because I've done interviews where I said that was the basis for the song lyrically. So um, Brandy is a song about um, uh, I think it's a sailor's daughter who is in love with a guy who goes to sea all the time. And, um, you know, it was just this very folky lyric. The song wasn't folky, but I loved the lyric. And that that became Rags, the mm. sailor's only daughter. Mm. But, yeah, um, at one point I played an acoustic guitar and had a harmonica around my neck. <laughs> you know, that's... that's, uh, that's uh, that's the beauty of music is is ingesting it all, taking it in and putting something out that is the product of all the things that inspire you. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it becomes incestuous. If you're just writing the thing you, you grew up listening to, big deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's that that's I mean, even with Soul Station, you know, I grew up with Philly Soul and Motown and that was big big stuff gamble and huff holland dozier holland and barrett strong and all those people so at some point i went i love this music so much i'll write some and that's what i did yeah i think the the soul station project the record that you put out you're doing cover songs but then you've also got these original songs and you know we've had guys on the show like Eddie Floyd and Lamont Dozier and Smokey Robinson and William Bell. And, you know, the, the guys who were kind of creating that stuff. And what I think is so remarkable about that record is when you kind of listen to it, like obviously a lot of the covers are, are familiar songs. So, you know, their covers, but some of the originals, I had to go look at the writer credits and go like, Oh, is this some like Philly soul song that I just didn't, didn't know. And it's like, Oh no, Paul wrote it. really emphasizes your point that as you're soaking up those influences, they start becoming part of your DNA and you're able to like put out your own very credible version of that type of thing. And, and it doesn't mean 
that you're crafting soundalikes because a soundalike is hollow. It has no depth to it. Um, if you do things properly, yeah, people listen to the album and go, it's seamless. I don't know. Um, my friend Richard Marks said to me, boy, I love Lorelei. Where'd that come from? Who did it? I went, um, that's mine. <laughs> well, you know, so. Yeah. And that, that's been the way with a lot of the, that material. Yeah. It's, you can be inspired by something and put your heart and soul or whatever you want to call it into it as opposed to doing a pastiche or or a, a, a carbon replica of something. Yeah, yeah. Really absorbing those influences and, and processing them and, and then filtering through your own lens instead of trying to totally. imitate. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, a 1977 Gallup poll uh, named Kiss the most popular band in America. And at that point, you guys uh, had just released the hugely successful Destroyer and Rock and Roll Over albums um, the previous year. And, and you followed that up with the Love Gun LP, which was another just smash. And the song Love Gun, I've heard you say, is one of your songs that you're most proud of. to hear a bit about the writing of love gun and and what it is about that one in, in particular that kind of is is special for you love gun is special because it's so simplistic and so right it just it just it builds to that drum figure that introduces the lyrics of the the chorus you know, first you have the, and then you're singing about love gun. Um, and the lyrics again are so simple, but you know, I, I think that sometimes what gets uh, dismissed as simple is I, I, I think oftentimes that that is overly simplistic because around the time that we were first massive, they, well, that's, that's junk. Emerson, Lake and Palmer. That's that's real music. Well, look who stood the test of time. Um, singing, singing about self empowerment and singing about enjoying life and singing about um, possibilities and whether it's sex or you know you you pick it. That's timeless. Stealing riffs from classical artists and and having everybody ooh and ah it well, you know um you know it, love gun steve cropper and and uh albert king did the hunter and the hunter has a uh, ain't no need to hide ain't no need to run because i got you in the sights of my love gun mm -hmm. and zeppelin used that on 
how many more times. And um, I just loved it. I heard when I was in Queens, a band, a Zeppelin wannabe band, local band, was playing in the park. I have no idea how they got electricity. They must have run a very, very long extension cord. <laughs> but uh, they were doing this song, and it was a sped-up version of The Hunter. And I was probably 17, 18, but I was like, whoa, that's cool. And I just remember, I thought I heard him say, I really love you, baby. Mm. And that became, I really love you, baby. I love what you've got. So, yeah, it's it's simplistic, but there's no fat, you know, mm. and it it, um, it gets where it's got to go without derailing or, or getting off at the wrong exit. It's just, it's a song that is really satisfying for me. I, I wrote it on a plane without a guitar. I heard the whole thing. And when we landed, that's when I grabbed a guitar. And, and uh, then when I went in the studio, to, I cut the demo. I played the bass. And um, it's, it's just that Detroit Rock City rock and roll all night yeah there's loads of other songs but there's something about love gun that uh is so simple and again it's a far cry from stupid it's simplicity is is can be elegant not that that song is elegant it's it's potent though there's a potency to simplicity yep and i was going to make a joke and say hey and i'm impotent but i'm not (laughs) (laughs) um you mentioned I was made for loving you before, um, and and I I was really struck by that image of you being in a disco club and and hearing it and thinking, oh wow, because you know this, this assumption that bands will always do the same thing year in and year out is it's that's not true to the artistic mentality. Um, you're always wanting to grow and change and adapt. Um, I would hope, right. We had a chance to talk to Desmond Child about the songs that you guys have written together, but I, I kind of wanted to talk to you about this one. Um, you know, the song incorporated disco elements, and, and it was kind of a polarizing one among KISS fans at the time, but since then, it's proven to be one of your most enduring songs, and it's a live staple, and for some people, it's one of the songs they most associate with KISS. That's not true of every rock act that, that dipped their toes in disco. Um, and I have my theories as to why that's been the case for you guys. You know, I think the, the guitars are incredibly raw. The bass, which I think you played, is is really raw as no, well. No, actually, Gene played that bass. Oh, got it. So, yes. so somebody out there on the internet is wrong. I'm, I'm going to find them and <laughs> tell them so. Um, but it, why do you think that song was different and didn't sort of fall into the cracks that, that some bands' experimentation with disco did? Interesting, because we play... When we're playing big festivals, um, we can headline a festival with some very, very heavy bands, metal, goth, you name it. And there was a time we went, should we really play I Was Made For Loving You? Hell yeah. You see 50, 80,000 you know, guys in, in denim and leather with their fists up going, doo, 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 doo. <laughs> I, you know, um, I'm not sure, but um, some of the bones of that song are, well, you can't sue God. So when when Springsteen used that on one of his songs, he used, 
um, that same melody. Um, Blondie used it. Call me. Um, But hey, I'm the first person to say, you know where that, you know where I was made for loving you? That come from standing in the shadows of love. I was made for love. So, you know. can't tell you why it stood the test of time but it's still a polarizing song mm. and yet everybody celebrates it yeah it's um it's it's funny it's it actually just a song that um that kind of exposed my children to kiss um and also i showed them the video it scared them to death which um <laughs> was the same thing that happened when i first saw you guys on a show called three two one contact when i was a kid and uh yeah just scared me out of my mind um but you guys were never afraid to try new things creatively um and i think music from the elder is a great example of that um you're talking about an ambitious concept album with a whole backstory it's kind of not unlike something the who would have done um the american single from that album was a song called a world without heroes uh one of a few songs that actually lists lou reed as a co-writer world without heroes is like a never That, that's another album that was kind of polarizing for people and it took a lot of criticism but that song actually ended up being covered by some other artists notably a share album in the early 90s and then it was included in the kiss unplugged performance and again over time i think the song has received a different treatment when it's been looked at with some distance um as a writer how do you respond to less than positive reactions to your songs i mean by this point you know, you've got the benefit of time to look and see when people are proven wrong and when a song is given another chance. But in the moment, how did that affect you creatively when you, you know, when you went back to write another song? Did, did these things linger in your head? I gotta be me. <laughs> I gotta be, you know? Yeah. Um, I gotta do what I gotta do. And sometimes I will fall famously and in front of everyone on my ass. Mm. But if I'm, if I'm a creative person, why would I put boundaries? I got into this because I didn't want any boundaries. I didn't want any rules. Mm. And is it disappointing sometimes when people don't like something that I like? Sure it is. But it would be more disappointing to me if I didn't do it. Mm. Um, that's the core of creativity is not wondering what would have happened if I did something. I'd rather just do it and let the chips fall where they may. Mm -hmm. Love it. 
uh, kind of similar to what Paul was saying. I have probably the first time that I encountered Kiss and I was a little kid and the makeup and the platform boots and all that was super overwhelming. But I think that, you know, there are casual observers who still think of, of Kiss as being kind of scary, this like super uh, theatrical band. And as we've been talking and, and as I look at your catalog, you see that there's so much more to the music, that this is far from a one-dimensional band. And I kind of want to dig in on the way that that came into focus in the 80s. You know, we've talked about Desmond Child and, and I Was Made for Loving You, but you guys collaborated uh, heavily on the 1984 Animalize album. And Desmond, of course, is one of the most successful pop songwriters of all time. Um, we see songs like uh, Turn on the Night that you wrote with Diane Warren on the Crazy Nights album in 1987. But outside of Kiss, that same year, Ronnie Spector recorded Love on the Rooftop, which he wrote with Desmond and Diane. Uh, that song was covered by Cher. You had a, a single, Hide Your Heart, that uh, Bonnie Tyler recorded. Um, another one you wrote with Desmond and, and Holly Knight. But I think that the pinnacle of this kind of pop music thread uh, has to be Forever, which you co-wrote with Michael Bolton, which I think would surprise a lot of people, um, and became Kiss's first top 10 single since Beth. I think that for those who, like me, maybe had those experiences as a kid and think of Kiss as this really hard, you know, theatrical band, behind the makeup is the heart of a guy who really knows pop music. I mean, these are great pop songs. Um, so, you you know, you do uh, metal, you do hard rock, but you also have this, like, pop sensibility, probably from all the stuff that you kind of soaked up. And I'm curious for you, is there any kind of tension between like the image and then who you know you are as a writer in terms of the breadth of what you do and how it kind of moves beyond categories? Are we, are we one dimensional? No. So if own for one thing, does it mean that that's all we are? Hopefully not. Um, if people enjoy and um, hold on to or align themselves with do doesn't mean it's all I do. Um, I'm, I'm not doing this interview yelling at you. I'm not screaming at you, <laughs> asking you, you know, to stand up and, and clap your hands. So for me, there's always been room for, for it all. And uh, I respect great songwriting and uh there there's the difference i think between 
us and most other bands that would be considered hard rock or metal or whatever you want to call it is I think we kind of paved the way for melody and hooks and and bridges and structure. We've never been about riffs and screaming over it. That's just not what we do. So our roots are once again in the Brill Building. Our roots are in in the writers that I loved growing up, whether it's you know Lieber and Stoller, or Goffin and King, and you know uh, Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich and Barry Mann, Cynthia Wheel. That's what I come from. Yeah. So to be able to bring that to the kind of music I do. The music that we do is uh, it's a blessing. It, it it gives us more breadth, mm. also more maybe depth. Um, the roots aren't always that obvious, and I think that that's a great thing. Yeah, there's a reason why we're sitting here talking about these songs uh, <laughs> 50 years on that you have managed to sustain this career and that kiss has managed to connect with people consistently and then even move into you know new generations and like the kids of the original fans um you know that doesn't happen on image alone there has to be some connection well, with the music and a visceral connection look the idea that we can appeal to three generations is an honor it's stellar um i want to appeal to the most people i don't i'm not in some kind of elitist you know they, that goes back to the fan club stuff i don't want to be oh we only play for guys who who don't have girlfriends um so yeah it, it's uh what we've done is timeless because it's relatable and because it's human um, you mentioned something earlier about you and Gene keeping lists of uh, possible song titles and even cribbing from one another's lists from time to time. And that leads nicely into a question that was submitted by one of our listeners. Uh, we have um, Patreon supporters who have the opportunity to submit questions uh, for guests on the show if they support us at a certain level. So uh, Chris uh, sent us this message. He says, there are many ways to get started writing a song, but writing from a title seems to be an effective means for a lot of people. Uh, many of the Kiss songs have striking titles. I wonder if, for Paul, titles are what get him started when he gets into writing mode. No, no. Um, I usually start with just fooling around with chords or riff, and it's kind of like a puzzle. Um once you start it and you know what you're doing, then it's a matter of filling in the blank spots. And oftentimes, I mean, Come On and Love Me is a great example. Um, baby, baby, don't you hesitate because I just can't wait. Lady, won't you take me down to my knees? You can do what you please. <gasps> Come on and love me. So that comes after. Mm. But... It's kind of like, I got it. You know, it's it's like, I did it. You know, it's like, it's not done until you complete the puzzle. And 
oftentimes I found that what's missing is the title. If lyrically it's working around a theme, how do you sum it up? That's what choruses are supposed to do. They're supposed to, they sum up what you're singing about. Yeah. We've talked so much, Paul, about your influences and how they made their way into your music. Um, and then I sit here thinking about all the bands that you have influenced and, and the bands that have covered Kiss. Um, you know, Nirvana covered a Kiss song. And, and I think about when I, so, so many of the songs I heard in the 80s, and I'd be like, is that a, is that a Kiss cover or is that a new song? I mean, there was, there was so much that you guys sort of spawned and then now here you are touring when so many of the bands you influenced aren't even still touring anymore. I mean, the longevity of your band is staggering. Um, and, you know, as we sort of come to, to highlight this tour that you guys are doing now, I, I think it's, it's really remarkable um, that, that you're still outpacing many of the bands you influenced. And, and here you are still going strong. It's, it's pretty awesome. Thank you. I, I, really, I really believe that the key to longevity, part of the key to longevity is roots. And if you don't have roots, you can't build anything that's going to stand the test of time. Um, when somebody would say to me, I, if I said to somebody, so who are your influences as a guitar player? Oh, Randy Rhodes and, and Eddie Van Halen. Well, okay, now listen to the people who influenced them. And then listen to the people who influenced those people. You got to go back because you need that foundation. Otherwise, what you're doing is shallow. It has no depth to it. And if it doesn't have depth to it, it doesn't stand up well. You listen to a whole lot of stuff from the 80s, and it just doesn't wear well on you because it had no roots. It had no, it had, had no basis in history. It's uh, and I think that's really important. Whether whether you steal bits and pieces in your material, or you just absorbed it and ingested it and bring it to your music. So, I appreciate what you're saying. The Kiss Into the Road tour is going to be wrapping up at the end of this year. So, listeners, uh, this is your chance. Get out there one more time to to hear these amazing songs that are made to be heard live. And, uh, you know, we just thank you again, Paul, for, for your time today. Truly uh, an honor to speak with you and uh, just uh, inspiring to hear your words. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can keep up with us on Instagram at Songcraft Conversations or Facebook at Songcraft Show. To join our team and help support our content, become a Songcraft patron at patreon.com. Visit patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can always find us at songcraftshow.com. 